Welcome to the Jungle Coffee Coalition podcast. We are a loose conglomerate of coffee people in Southeast Asia, and we have until now featured a couple of our members, Fuadi Pitswan in Thailand, and myself, Will Frith in Vietnam, and today we get to know Carmel Lorino in the Philippines, who's doing some really interesting work and I think is one of the pioneers to this kind of look again at Southeast Asian coffees movement that we are uh, successfully or unsuccessfully <laughs> trying to bring to the mainstream. Um, hi, Carmel. Hi. Hi, Fawdi. Hi, Will. Hello, Carmel. Hello, Will. Carmel, I'm very curious to your coffee origin story. I want to know like, what, what brought you to coffee, even if it was like as a kid, mm-hmm. somebody thinking it was funny to give a kid <laughs> coffee or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so tell us how it started for you. Sure. I guess my, my first coffee experience would be um, my parents drank Folgers Instant at home. I grew up in the U.S., but I spent my my first six years in the Philippines. And so, like, my aunts, who already had lived in the U.S., would bring back, you know, American things. And one of it was that was, like, it was always part of, like, the, the box sent to the Philippines or brought back. And so my first, my first uh, memories of coffee is instant. And that was what we had at home, especially if someone was visiting from America. And later on, you know, like growing up in the Pacific Northwest, Starbucks was always around. And so in college, I worked at Starbucks for a little bit, like six months. And so that was my first like barista experience. But other than that, I had only been coffee consumer. And it wasn't until the curiosity of coffee and origin in the Philippines got the best of me. And then I moved and explored coffee here through the inspiration of an old 1909 photograph um, of Pike Place Market where Philippine coffee was being sold and got me curious as to if there was still one coffee in the Philippines, why couldn't I drink Filipino coffee in the U.S.? What would it take to bring Philippine coffee back if this was already part of our history? And it's sort of similar to Fawdi's experience in college, right? It's like, oh, there's all these specialty cafes. And in the Northwest, we, I think, are surrounded by really great restaurants and a food industry that pays homage to origins, whether if it's, you know, a local farm in the region or um, you go in into a specialty cafe and it's talking about the farmer and where it's produced and the coffee taste profiles. And I was curious why we, we the Philippines wasn't involved in that story. Okay. I want to make you back up for just a second. You're saying that at the turn of the century in Seattle, Washington, at Pike Place Market, there was a Philippine coffee place? <laughs> Yes. Um, so I, I came across the photograph um, doing research on the diaspora in the Pacific Northwest at the turn of the century. The impetus was this history project on the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition, which is 
a World's Fair that happened at the University of Washington campus that the school I went to. And so I was researching like the, the indigenous community from the north, the Igrots that were brought in as part of the show of why America was moving westward and colonizing and exploring ways to expand their imperialist um, ways. And so I was looking through archives because the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition, I think, happened in 1908, 1909. And that photo was a Filipino coffee company. And there was a, like three or four white American uh, merchants hawking Filipino coffee, chocolates, um, and other things from the country. I was less curious about who these men were. Um, I was more interested in like, oh, our products were already here. So yeah, it was 60, 70 years before Starbucks, right? Like people know Pike Place as the birthplace or where the first Starbucks shop was was located. But before that, there was a bit of pride, right? I was like, oh, if this this would have stayed in Pike Place, would Starbucks have served Philippine coffee, you know? And this, this was a college project? Yeah, it was a history, like a history research project. Wow. Because I, I have seen that picture before you posted about it. I thought, I thought you found that when you have already started Calzada. I didn't, I didn't know that it, it was an inspiration. <laughs> yeah, it was like, wow. I was a junior, senior, uh, fourth year in undergrad when I saw that photo. So it was very distinct, right? It was like a lot of questions and it had nothing to do with my history project. But that's where sort of the seeds were planted. You know, I was like, oh, I want to explore this maybe when I'm old and open a cafe. Maybe there's still Philippine coffee when I'm that old and I will serve it in the cafe, right? And then I put it in the back burner and it came back again three years later. <laughs> and three years later, does that mean like you decided to, what did you find out? And then was it just an overnight realization that I'm going to start importing <laughs> Filipino coffee now? It was not. So three years after I saw that photo, I came back to the Philippines on a Fulbright Haste like language program. And I was staying with a host family in Cavite, which is south of Manila. It's known for Robusta and also having coffee, but I didn't know that there was coffee in the region. My host family just took me to a farm and I was like, huh, there's coffee here. And I remember that photograph and then I tasted the coffee and it was really, really bad. But I wasn't, I wasn't discouraged. I was even more curious, right? It's like, oh, now that I know coffee is still around, it's being grown, this can't just be it. There's got to be other places, right? So yeah, I went back to Seattle and like kept thinking about it and then started just like an online blog. So Calzada was like a group of friends that we just wanted to research and explore and maybe figure out a way where someone on the ground in the Philippines could do some of that work. Um, while we figured out what we wanted to create. And not everyone was Filipino or Filipino-American. I think we were all just united by our love for coffee, but also um, this this goal of connecting farmers and the supply chain and like understanding what it would take for this unknown region, right? So that was the starting point and the seeds of Calzada wasn't even an importing, exporting company. It was a bunch of friends 
highly caffeinated and trying to figure out what was happening in the Philippines from a distance. And then I would say that was about six or seven months before I finally was like, okay, this can't be done from afar. Let me just go. And it's similar to Will F. No, Faudi, where you were going else to grad school. Um, I was supposed to move to New York for my master's and decided to take the first year as online and uh, moved to Manila instead. And so this was 20, tail end of 2013. And I'm still here. (laughs) I finished grad school though, but I haven't really left the Philippines. I thought I was only going to be here for a year. And how has the market been receiving the Filipino coffee? What, how do you market it? How do you explain to the people? about Filipino coffee? I guess in the early stages of trying to figure out what we were going to be to now, I think our first audiences were really my networks and contacts in Seattle, the Filipino-American community that was excited to see their and taste Philippine coffee. And locally, I think at that tail end of the year into 2014, there were new I felt like I came at the right time and the timing was on my side. And um, that's when Yardstick start, um, opened and that's when like the curator opened, Edsa opened. And so I was meeting these existing players and new players in the industry that were also um, starting specialty. And so I think having that initial cohort of up and coming in the Philippines really helped Calzada kind of build an audience locally and also support, right? Like we didn't have a roasting machine. Like we roasted at Edsa to taste coffees from different parts of the regions and trying to identify farmers and farms that had quality that could potentially be increased or that were willing to learn from us. And we were also learning at the same time. So I think in that early first, second year was a lot of listening at, at the ground level because we were outsiders, right? So it's it, there's a major players and kind of like an old guard in terms of the Philippine industry. But I was also bullheaded and like just really just wanted to work with the producers versus trying to start from the top down. If we couldn't drink Philippine coffee in the U.S., there must have been an issue in terms of supporting the producers was like my question, right? It was like, I want to just listen to the farmers and understand where they are and what they their hopes and aspirations are like if they still want to produce coffee, right? Are they making income? And so we started from really the grassroots perspective. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious to know, like, so I know you're working with a team now. Yeah. Um, when did it change from like like a, a solo curiosity and discovery into something where you're like, okay, I'm ready to like involve some other people with something that has a bit more skin in the game? Yeah, I would say I've always been very collaborative in my approach. I think shifting it from a project to a business was something I was curious about, but also didn't know how to navigate, right? Like I didn't go into this thinking it was going to become an export company in the Philippines, an importing company in the U.S., and that we would have two two companies. 
Um, and so even at like the project exploratory phase, uh, my co-founders were already a part of it, right? And it was just uh, formalizing what that was on paper. Um, but the the skin in the game was there at the inception. I bring in the heart and soul and then also the, I would say, the hard-headedness of doing what I set out to do, like, oh, returning Philippine coffee to Seattle, like this old photograph. And books like Lacey and Tere really made that happen. Uh, Lacey, my co-founder, who's now based in Paris, had a coffee background already. She lived in Chicago and then moved to Paris and roasted and then joined me a couple of months after moving to the Philippines in uh, 2013. I think she arrived January or February of 2014 um, and did those initial exploratory uh, trips to the farms. And today it was my sister's grad student who spoke fluent Ilocano. Um, and that's the language that's spoken at the farms. And she was always interested in visiting different parts of the Philippines. And she had gone to these regions. And so I was like, hey, can you go with me? Because I want to really understand what farmers are saying, but I can't communicate with them right in their language. So Tere now is the country director of Calzada Philippines, um, and she's been at the forefront of onboarding producers, building the mills, really working on the ground level and increasing the quality of Philippine coffee. We now have three mills and about in northern Philippines and then a fourth mill in Mindanao that we're building this year. These are really small compared to what you guys are up to. But, you know, it's a start. Can you explain the, the farm structure in, in the Philippines? Is it like, you know, each small holder has their own pauper and you and you how and the way you work? Uh, do you buy parchment or you buy cherries to process? If you could explain how is the typical farm size production so people can understand. Yeah. So when I first visited a farm in northern Philippines, I went to a farm in Mountain Province, which is about, I would say, 11 hours from Manila. The farm was in the middle, like you had to hike through a rice terraces and then there was then a farm with a small hand wooden pulper. And I this was my first origin, so I had nothing to compare it to. So I would say my expectations, there was no expectations, right? It's, it's all smallholder farmers. They're processing in their backyard or on their rooftop um, or on the roadside. We, the, we lacked modern production techniques. Um, so both like, the age of the farmers and also there was no expansion services and the post-harvest processing uh, emphasis was on the low quality Robusta rate. So we're a 70% Robusta producing country. So um, Nestle is a big buyer. So the Arabica production is like hovers around 25% of our production. So um, there's was little coordination with industry stakeholders. So that's what I noticed at the start. And so we started small. So at the beginning, we bought green from once we traced farmers and they're small, like sometimes a farmer will produce, the ones that we met would produce like 
60 kilos, 120 kilos, their, their farm would be half a hectare or range from half a hectare to two, perhaps, but not older trees. So it, it lacked new trees. And so the production was really low. And they also didn't have the proper methods to produce high quality. But we, we would trace back certain producers that had really good production or had potential and would buy like 35 kilos green and would visit them again and share some some knowledge, right? Um, and so this was early stage of Calzada before we had built a mill. And so when we exported and imported to the U.S., we had maybe, I would say, 15, 15 or so maybe 18, less than 20 different lots that were all really small. And we started as a roaster in the U.S. because we thought part of it was marketing these small holder farmers and what they were doing well because we didn't have the funds or the infrastructure yet to build and combine um, lots and buy cherry. So so yeah, our first, first or second year was buying small lot green. And then the labels would have the name of the, the producer. And then we did a Kickstarter campaign to build our first mill in Sitio Belize. And that's when we were able to produce more coffee at larger volumes and more standard quality. Pretty cool. So, so Sitio means like farm, like finca in a way? Yes. Or- well, it's a region, like a small, I would, I would say it's uh, Sitio is a small town or a little village. So, okay. so we've named our mills after a cluster of producers uh, that live in the same village. Ah, that's so cool. So if you had to, if I, if I forced you <laughs> into a corner um, and said, describe Philippine Arabica to me, could you do it? Um, I, I would say certain regions have... A distinct profile, but what's 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 exciting about the Philippines is that I feel like we're in uh, we have the opportunity to really create what the Philippine profile is at this point, right? In Sitio Belize and our Binguet Farms, which is the province, you do get the chocolatey, nutty flavor, but in like Mindanao, the more old what the locals there called. Um, sweet coffee. It's very floral and citrusy. Um, it has jasmine notes. I think it varies. That sounds like Geisha that you just described. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's exciting, right? I feel like we still have an opportunity, Calzada does, and also the, the Philippines has an opportunity to really create what the Philippine coffee profile will be. Or that it can be different things. Yeah. Do you see? I, I heard you you hit a ma- new milestone this year, uh, exporting full container. <laughs> yes, uh, a full container, but not full full. But we were yeah. able to um, ship as its ship. own container. Yeah, 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 with no other product in. So that was really exciting. Most of the coffees produced in the Philippines are consumed locally. Um, we only produce, I think like 70, 75,000 metric tons. And then we import about over 100,000 metric tons from Vietnam, from Indonesia, 
from the region. So not a whole lot of Philippine coffee gets actually exported. Wow, 75,000. That's a lot. Production, but that's Robusta, huh? Ah, Robusta as well. Okay. Yeah. So that's mostly Robusta. Oh, okay. How, what's the percentage of Arabica and Robusta? Um, like 20, 25% okay. of that. Mm-hmm. What's the math? <laughs> which mean, which mean it's similar to, uh, I mean, a little bit more than Thailand, actually a bit bigger. Really? That's surprising. But you know, this is a national statistic. So we are working on just our, our own data collection and trusting only our own data collection. Not the uh, nationalist <laughs> um, collection. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really exciting. I, I think I just had a little stream of thought about how, how Tipica has really helped different areas to define themselves as like a quality coffee producer. It made me think about like Jamaica Blue Mountain and Hawaiian Kona, and that's all based on a Tipica variety. Just, I, I, I would be afraid to, to say much more than that because I don't want to like get myself into thinking all I have to do is put some Tipica here. Yeah, and, yeah. But it is interesting to note. It is. And um, for us, the those coffees that have scored um, the highest, at least from cupping with other folks outside of the Philippines, is that old typical lot, the sweet, the local sweet uh, coffee. But it's also the most difficult to grow. The production is low. The trees aren't as healthy. They don't produce as much cherry. So we are experimenting with that specific coffee and have planted some in the northern part of the Philippines where Sitio Belize is so we can monitor it and we have better relationship with the community there since we have a mill. So if it's healthy then and if it cups well, we'll continue growing it. So I think you have to find that balance, right, of right. finding good quality, but also something that's economically feasible for producers to to replicate and grow. Yeah, yeah. That, and here, it's it's kind of what you described. If we were to ask the farmer that we're talking to, you know, where are your Tipica trees? He would tell us to look for the sick-looking ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's, the same. that's the same in Thailand. We can usually tell which one is typical if it's like long and lanky with little leaf and, and rust. Yeah. And, 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 uh, yeah, you want to find the, the katura, look for the rust. Yeah, yeah the, those are pretty much what the farmers would tell us. Not even jokingly, just like... Yeah. <laughs> just like, here's the truth. Here's here's the real deal. Oh, no. <laughs> So are there, are there any institutes there, like agricultural institutions that are like working on things like varieties or agricultural um, sort of research or agroforestry stuff that potentially work with? Uh, yes and no. I mean, we have a Department of Agriculture and then also the Department of Trade and Industry that's supposed to promote different products that are grown or produced here. But in terms of what really boils down to is the coordination between these industry stakeholders, right? Like how to properly segment the chain and communicate between the farmers and like markets. And I think there's some overlaps. And so 
we have been invited to some of those conversations, but I, at this point, we are still working for the most part with just the producers in some research institute, like at the university level, right? Like the University of the Philippines and also private nonprofit groups like a Peace and Equity Foundation um, that we can promote sort of our, what we want to research at the farm level. So, you know, to sum it all up, Calzada is doing a little bit of everything in the supply chain, coordinating smallholder farmers, building infrastructure in terms of wet mills. We are then roasting locally, exporting, and then in the U.S. we're an importer. And then this next harvest, I need to confirm this with Didit, but we will have a bit of funding from a nonprofit locally. And so we can do some uh, model farm um, and grow and do a small research batch in one of the communities we work with. So we can gather more information and share that with others on best practices. Wow. I just, I feel like you're bragging a little bit. (laughs) It's um, not. Uh, it's just hard. I figured out that I'm like, how are we doing this all uh, as a team of three? But it's not really a team of three, right? We have um, 75 producers that also are part of the Calzada team. So when, when you sent these coffees uh, to the U.S., it's all in small lots? Like how many bags per, per farmers? How, did, how you, does it usually get? Divided? So our SKU, like the num- before when we were roasting in the U.S., I think there were, I, I can't remember anymore, but there was probably like 15 or so. But now since we have a handful of mills in the, in the Philippines, it's now like, so there's now three main mills so that we export. And this will either have a wash or a natural process as part of that lot. Um, And we do a a little bit of honey. Um, We did um, maybe a 35 kilo anaerobic lot um, last year, but that was for a specific buyer. So they had to pre-purchase that already. We didn't want to do any experiments unless someone was already going to buy it. Because there's extra work on the farm and for the producer. It must be really difficult for you to to market all these small lots. Cost of sending sample and and you have to send more than one. Or how how do you do it? Because I started out like that, and I realized that if the lots are too small, then it's really not. It's really difficult to market. I think we've been fortunate to have an extended Calzada network that are excited in progressing Philippine coffee. And so they are okay with smaller lots. And these are mostly West Coast roasters that we've built relationships with from the get-go and maintained. And I usually, you know, since we're still small, I usually had before COVID, I'd have a mule, whoever was going to the U.S., I'd be like, hey, can you bring these samples? I'll, I'll Venmo you the cost of how much it would be to send it to a potential client. But but now we we used to entertain sending off samples, but 
I've learned to kind of control who we send those samples to because that's costly. We only send samples to our existing clients. And then if anyone else is interested that's new, they have to pay for the samples or if not the, the shipment of the coffees from the Philippines. So that's been our model now. That's pretty cool. And you guys just launched a, a sample set, right? Yeah, so we just launched a sample set. And our plan, since because it's so difficult now with in the midst of the pandemic and getting coffees out, and we didn't get to do Expo this past year, we thought best way for new potential buyers or even home roasters or people interested in Philippine coffee the best way would be to put it on our website. So we sent a couple extra bags to the U.S. And so we're doing fulfillment of like small batch green samples, 100 gram or one pounder for anyone that's interested in like roasting or trying our coffees in the U.S. So that's that's new. And then we will or we already have started also roasting small batch as well in the U.S. So we started off as a roasting company in the U.S. in 2014, and then we scaled back because we knew the issue was really in the production and scaling and increasing quality. And so we stopped roasting in the U.S. and focused on the farm level and then had only been exporting for the, you know, since 2015, 2016. And then now we're reintroducing our, our roasted brand in, in small batches. Uh, mostly our new lots are micro lots that aren't readily available in, in the U.S. yet. Wow. And, and you are roasting locally as well, right? Yeah, we're roasting in Manila. This happened because it took us a really long time to get our export license um, when we first started. And so we had sitting inventory in the warehouse and we couldn't just let them sit there. So we started roasting a little bit um, and got a handful of clients. And so we, I also believe in keeping the, our stuff here so locals can taste it. It's, um, I think roasters still find it a little still expensive for for local coffee, but um, there is a market locally, and hopefully that will shift in the next couple of years where we can keep more more of our coffees uh, in country. I mean, you you do all these uh, uh, in the supply chain. At which point for for Calzada you see most potential in 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 growing and moving forward with. I think it's what is the most difficult, but also the most needed and the most potential is really the production side. So our plan is like, I think we have, we're planning on expanding in Mindanao. So it's not just building a mill in the community, but also securing a long-term lease. So we can also have a model farm and a Calzada, Calzada micro lot in that community. And so we want to build more mills in the country. And so that's where it's the most needed, right? Like if we're thinking about the Philippines as an origin, um, we need more infrastructure. We need more production. We need better quality seedlings. And the only way to do that is really investing in at the farm level. Word. I think uh, now would be a good time for us to tell 
our listeners. Hi, all three of you. Uh, <laughs> where where they can find your coffee? Sure. Our coffees are available if you're outside of the Philippines and in the U.S. Andy Town in San Francisco carries our coffee. Mostra in San Diego. In Seattle, Dorothea carries our coffee and Fulcrum as well, um, Roaster Coffee. And then a new Chicago-based Roaster Four Letter Word just bought our coffees this year. We're really excited. She's a female roaster. And then another one on the East Coast, Brujas Brew, I think is the name, two smaller scale buyers. And in the Philippines, we roast here. So that information is on our website, calsada.com, or on Instagram, Calsada Coffee. I, I saw your offering on Paradise as well, right? Oh, yes, Paradise. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, Miguel! Don't hate me. He, he, he might be one of the three people <laughs> listening right now. So I was like, oh, that. oh, I should have had that list down. You know, yeah. when you like win an Oscar, you're supposed to bring you know the list of people you you think. <laughs> and yes, Miguel has been there from the get go. One of the first first coffee roasters that I met when we were still formulating, and I had just moved to the Philippines. He had visited, I think, in 2014 with his fedora hat and everything. So, And then I saw him again when I visited you, Faudi. So Paradise has been there from, from the get-go purchasing our coffees. That's really cool. <laughs> I just want to highlight, though, that you just compared this podcast to the Academy Awards. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> I totally did. Um, okay, well, I, man... What a journey, and I'm really stoked to see what the next year brings um, for Calzada and Philippine Coffee, and hopefully we can get some sort of like potential exchange going on between the three of our countries. For sure. I would love to see like some sort of collab combo pack, Big Mac with fries kind of deal um, yeah. with, with all of our coffees available and easy to get. So cool. Well, Carmel, it's been a pleasure getting to know you. And I hope that this is like just the indication of how interesting uh, at least the three of us think all of this stuff is. And hopefully our listeners will too. <laughs> and, and the conversations that we can potentially continue to have. It seems like the three of us have pretty wide range of activities throughout the supply chain and uh, so that means there'd be plenty to talk about. Yep, for sure. It was great. Thanks for um, interviewing me today. Oh, uh, yes. My pleasure. It's almost <laughs> like a conversation, you know, like any other day. Yeah. Just... Thanks, guys. Cool. Well, a pleasure. Talk to you soon. <laughs> talk to you later. Right, thank you very much. <laughs> See you in the next episode of Jungle Coffee Coalition. That's another episode of the Jungle Coffee Coalition. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. We are also on Instagram at Jungle Coffee Coalition. Thanks for listening.